Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 29th episode is David W. Teeter, Esquire, a matrimonial and family attorney for 18 years, admitted to the New York and California Bar. David concentrates his practice on the following matters, divorce, child custody and support, maintenance and alimony, and prenuptial agreements. Please check out the show notes for a full list of David Teeter's credentials and contact information. Please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, David, please tell us about yourself. How did you come to specialize in matrimonial law? Well, I've been an attorney for almost 30 years, but I've been practicing matrimonial law for the last 18 years, shortly after I left the Nassau County Legal Aid Society, where I was the assistant bureau chief. Uh, I worked in a firm that was uh, developing a matrimonial practice, and I gravitated toward that area. Most lawyers try to stay away from divorce law. I enjoy it. So let's start with the relatively new maintenance statute. How long has the new spousal maintenance statute been in place, and how has it changed the prior law? There was a temporary maintenance statute that's been around for a while, uh, almost 10 years now. Temporary meaning how much maintenance is going to be uh, paid while the divorce case is pending. But only for the last three years has there been a maintenance statute for the finality of divorce, once the divorce is actually issued, and then how long maintenance will be paid after that. In essence, how does the statute work? What is the calculation? So what happens is there's a formula where they look at the income of the husband and the wife, and I suppose it could be same-sex marriage these days. That's also uh, possible. Um, But they look at the income of the two parties, um, and there's a formula which basically is measuring the difference, how much, how far apart is their income, and it calculates an amount of support from that. And then there's guidelines as to how long the support will be paid. And this applies only to alimony or support of the spouse, correct? Not the child? Right. So there's a separate formula for child support where there's children. uh, And then also the spousal maintenance formula varies if child support is also being paid. Okay. And with this new spousal support statute, is there a benefit to the higher income earner? or the lower income earner? Anytime you have a formula, what you're substituting is you have more a, a more definite number over something that's particularly tailored to the parties. So the formula generates a number, but that number isn't really based on the particulars of those parties, whether they have very high expenses, whether they spend all of their money. And it's also limited to the first $178,000 of the payor's income. So if somebody makes much more than that, the statute could be quite a significant benefit to that person. To the higher income earner. Correct. And how has this statute changed the way you practice law or the advice you give your clients? So the uh, again, because the statute provides a definite number, when a client comes in after we've had a chance to gather the information, uh, put it all together, then we run the formula and we take a look at what that formula comes out with. There are um, a list of discretionary factors for a judge to either award more or less than the formula allows for. 
But depending on how that number comes out, depending on which party I'm representing, that will certainly guide how we handle the case. It might be a matter of needing to gather all the information to make a good case for significantly more maintenance than that. Or, you know, in other situations where if people have very high expenses, such as they're paying for private school, um, then we have to gather, we have to look at how that amount of calculated maintenance is really going to affect the finances of, of the parties. It sounds to me like the advice of the attorney is very important here to help the client either maximize the payment, the alimony payment to the receiver, or perhaps to minimize the payment for the spouse who is paying alimony. Absolutely. And one of the things that's hard uh, sometimes for people to get a hold of is to really understand their own personal finances. They might know how much money is coming in, but they don't necessarily know where all that money is going. So you have to have a good handle on what their money is being spent on so that you can make a case if the maintenance and child support don't add up to enough to really cover the expenses. You have to be able to really demonstrate that. I want to move to the new federal tax law and the changes to the way alimony and child support are treated for tax purposes. Now they're treated the same way so that there is no deduction to a person paying alimony or to the a person who receives the alimony as income which needs to be reported. How does this affect matrimonial practice? Right. So it used to be that because maintenance was deductible from the income of the payor spouse and includable in the income of the spouse receiving the maintenance, that would help generate a settlement because the payor spouse could afford to pay a little more since he usually it was the husband usually he was getting a tax deduction for it and the wife could then receive a little bit more because the amount of taxes she was paying um, was less Um, so it helped us massage the numbers to come up with a settlement that would work for both parties now that 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 tax deduction is no longer available for the spouse paying support then it makes it a little bit more difficult and in fact what's happening is the spouse paying support many times if a lawyer is in that position whether i'm in the position i've seen other lawyers take this as well is that they should really be paying less support than the formula uh, would otherwise suggest, and they ask for you know a, a 30% discount, saying, "Look, I'm no longer getting the tax deduction that I used to get. This formula was designed for a tax deduction. The formula hasn't been updated since the change in the tax law, and therefore I should get a 30% reduction, which um, is a good argument. Uh, the problem is that the spouse receiving support probably can't afford to take 30% less. So it's made things a little bit more difficult. But also the spouse receiving the maintenance, we're using support and maintenance interchangeably, also doesn't have to pay tax on that income. Isn't there really room to reduce the amount a little bit in consideration of that tax savings? Yes, that's a good point. However, if the the one paying support is asking for a 30% reduction, the one receiving support was really going to only pay you know 10 or 15, 20% maybe, maybe in uh, taxes, then then the one receiving support is losing much more than she otherwise would be paying uh, in taxes. Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about the two courts in New York State, which have concurrent jurisdiction over matrimonial and family matters, the Supreme Court, the Matrimonial Center, and the Family Court. What are the differences between the Matrimonial Center and the Family Court in the various counties? Which courts 
hear which kinds of cases, is there overlap, and is there a reason to go to one over the other? So Supreme Court is the only place where you can file a divorce. You cannot file a divorce in family court. Other than that, family court can pretty much handle every other case. So they can handle a custody case, child support case, all of the normal things that you would do in a matrimonial case. So uh, for people who aren't married, they generally go to family court. Uh, For people who need a divorce, they generally go to Supreme Court. There are occasions when even people who aren't married end up in Supreme Court, but that's unusual. Supreme Court is generally more expensive to practice in. Most judges there expect that you're going to have a lawyer. You're going to have a lawyer representing you, and they really are very uncomfortable with people who represent themselves, people who are called pro se. In family court, on the other hand, you can file your petition by yourself. You can go to court. Um, They will help you to a greater and lesser degree, depending on where you are. File your petition. They'll guide you as to what sort of petition you need to file. And then once you're in front of a judge, there are even some cases, some of the time, will appoint an attorney for you. Okay, and that's a good segue to a question about the difference in practice among the counties on Long Island. For example, is a divorce case in Queens conducted essentially the same as in Nassau? So it depends. I think it depends more judge to judge. Who your judge is will have a very large impact on your case. Just the other day, I was in front of a judge in Queens whose position is that if you filed a joint tax return, if you sign a joint tax return, The amount of money that's on that tax return is the amount of money she's going to use for support, and that's it. So if you're in a situation where the husband is not really reporting all of his income, but he throws a tax return in front of the wife, the joint tax return in front of the wife, and says, here, sign this, the wife is stuck with that number. There's some case law support for this idea, but not not every judge follows that, and, and I think it works a real injustice on some people. So you're saying that when a spouse accepts cash and doesn't report that income, income is not imputed, even if the other spouse has proof or evidence of receipt of those sums? Yes. And at, at least at the stage, at the temporary stage where you're going into court and the judge has to look at the tax return and, and accept that tax return as how much income they have and make a determination as to how much support is going to be paid while, while the case is pending. At that stage of the proceedings, the judge is not going to listen to any evidence as to all the other income. And yeah, you're right. It it is about cash. It's people who have cash businesses who oftentimes are not reporting all their income. Okay. And so we've been talking about Supreme Court judges. Let's clarify. Supreme Court is the lowest general trial court in New York State. Kind of a misnomer, but there we go. I believe that all Supreme Court judges are elected It is a political uh, election, excuse me. However, is the same true for family court judges as well as support magistrates? So family court judges are elected. They they do an interesting thing. Different counties do it differently. But uh, in Nassau County, for example, uh, oftentimes judges will get elected for one court and then they'll get placed in another court. So a county court judge might be placed in the family court. Those are all administrative decisions that I'm not privy to. Um, they are elected positions. The magistrates support magistrates. That is an appointed position. Those um, are in family court. They're, they sit in family court and they handle child support. Before, the, before we get to that, I just want to clarify something. So is it possible then that you have a judge sitting in family court who may have no matrimonial experience? 
Yes, the the judges get placed based on again administrative decisions um, made by the administrative judges, um, and they move from one position to another. So it does happen that judges will be placed in somewhere where they don't have experience. That actually happens more frequently uh, in the Nassau County Supreme Court uh, because there. As I understand it, they have a choice of where they want to be placed. And so the judges with the least seniority end up in the matrimonial court. So that so it's the least desirable right. appointment. So okay. not so they're new to judges and oftentimes they're new to matrimonial law as well. Uh, and so there's a, a little breaking in period, I think. So that's a challenge for attorneys who are experienced in this area and who may come before a judge who may have no experience. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. The, the one thing you can hope for is that they hire a, a court attorney or a law secretary who's knowledgeable, who, who can help uh, guide through, guide everyone through the process. And those are generally attorneys who yes. uh, are appointed to help them. So what is the function of support magistrates? How are they different from judges and uh, why do we need them? I actually enjoy being in front of support magistrates because uh, they do one thing, um, which is award child support or handle the child support cases in family court. They can also award spousal maintenance. Most of the time they're just working, they're most doing child support, but they're very knowledgeable. They have a lot of experience. They, they're hearing child support cases every, every single day, dozens of them every day. They're very, very knowledgeable as to what the law is. As to the discretionary matters, as to things that, that come within their discretion, they've seen so many things, they know exactly how they view things, what their opinion is, and they give good guidance on, on what they're going to do, which will either lead to a quick settlement or or if it leads to, if we have to do a hearing, you, you know where it's going to come out in advance. And the support magistrates are only located or only available in family court, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay. So for listeners who may be contemplating divorce, what is the process that they should expect? So the first thing that they need to do is they need to talk to a number of divorce attorneys. Um, it's, it's a good idea to talk to more than one. They should talk to, you know, at least two or three. They can get recommendations uh, from lawyer, from other lawyers, uh, from friends. Why um, do they want to talk to more than one attorney? You're saying before they retain, before correct. they hire an attorney. Yes. Um, different lawyers ha- will handle things a different way. They'll also get a good idea of what their personality is, whether they're the kind of lawyer who they're comfortable dealing with, um, whether they're somebody, you know, depends on what you're looking for, but whether it's somebody who they think might um, be unnecessarily aggressive, somebody who is reasonable, somebody who's knowledgeable. Um, You have to be comfortable with your attorney um, because you have to be ready to follow your attorney's advice. If you have an attorney that you don't trust and you're not gonna follow that person's advice, everyone, you're gonna be making a mistake. You need to find somebody that you're really, really gonna trust and that you're willing to follow their advice. And you do this before you retain any specific attorney because you wanna find one attorney and stick with that attorney throughout the process, correct? Yes, absolutely. I mean, people do change attorneys. Um, Sometimes they start with one attorney and they realize that they've lost confidence and they change attorneys. There is kind of a rule of thumb over in court. When you see somebody who's gone through more than two attorneys, if they're on their third attorney, everyone in court, the judges, the, uh, the lawyers, they all kind of look at each other like this person's a problem. Because if you can't find the right person and stick to that person, sometimes 
they'll you'll be judged by that. Uh, you know, they'll think this person um, is unstable. So you need to find somebody and stick to somebody. If you don't find the right attorney for your case, who who meshes with you and with your values, you're going to be judged by the court personnel. Yes, I mean, I don't look. I don't think that's going to happen if you change once. You know, people make mistakes. They pick an attorney. They realize the case is headed in a different direction and they need uh, a change of course. And so if you change attorneys once, that's probably okay. When you start changing multiple times, that's when people start looking at you like, maybe this is your fault. Okay, and we're gonna move to a segment which we call, what is on your desk? A recent client or matter, which you can use to illustrate a teachable legal moment to the listeners. So David, what's on your desk? This is related to the the issue that uh, we, we discussed before, which is this judge in Queens who takes this issue about only looking at the family finances, only looking at the last tax return. Um, and I have a case right now where the court is only looking at the last tax return, and it's detrimental to my client. I'm representing the wife, um, and the amount that's on the last tax return is, frankly, not all of the income. The good news is that the last tax return um, is from 2018. Um, so she's bound, according to this judge, she's bound um, by what they reported in 2018. But for 2019, uh, we have free reign to prove exactly how much money the, the husband was making. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to do that by, by figuring out how much money he's spending. When somebody has a cash business, you can't necessarily determine all of the cash. You can't necessarily find all of the cash. Depends on what records there are. Um, but you can find out how much money somebody's spending. Once you know how much money somebody's spending, that's the amount of money the judge is going to assume that the person is making. That's what's on my desk right now. And, and the point is that if you're in a situation like this, you have to know what you're spending. You have to start looking at records figuring out you know, what you spend, where the money's going, uh, and grab hold of those records. Okay, and you brought up an interesting point, David. When you're assigned to a judge, in whether matrimony in the matrimonial center or in family court, you're basically stuck with that judge, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no judge shopping. Um, you can't pick your judge, can you? No, no, no. As I say, in Nessa County, it's not really true in, in other places, but in Nessa County, normally when there's an election, uh, the new judges will be coming in at the beginning of the year. So sometimes judges will move because of that. But short of that, unless the judge is moving because of an election, you're, the judge you have is the judge you're going to have the whole time. What are some tips for our listeners who may be contemplating a divorce? So a few things. One, at the beginning of the case, you should make sure that you know, again, as I've said before, you know your household finances, know how much money you spend, know where it goes, know how much it costs to run the household. Uh, and then number two, get a hold of the documents, know where those documents are um, and, and keep them in a safe place. So bank accounts, brokerage accounts, IRAs, 401ks, credit card records, um, all of those things are, are going to be important. And uh, sometimes in a divorce, things have a, have a way of disappearing. Um, records showing how much jewelry, uh, a receipt for jewelry, um, an insurance receipt, if, if the jewelry was put on an insurance rider, uh, those, things, those things are very important because they have, a, they have a way of disappearing. And then the other thing is, um, if there's going to be a particular issue uh, in your divorce, whether it's 
with respect to finances or maybe it's with respect to custody. Keep a journal. People think they remember everything that's going on, but it's hard to come up with the exact date and time that something happens. So start keeping a journal, keep dates as to, you know, if it's a custody matter, what happened on a particular date, make a note of it. And that way later on, um, when you're called to justify your position, you'll have the date, time, exactly what happened. And also a journal can be helpful with respect to the financial issues as well. Um, if you know how money is being spent, you're going out to a fancy restaurant and you're spending a couple hundred dollars, um, you can make a note of that. If you're paying credit card bills with cash, you can make a note of that. You can keep track of these things. That way you'll have it. Uh, and you'll have that information available uh, to your lawyer once you do commence the divorce. And so the bottom line is keep good records and keep documents. And that is probably the best evidence for down the road when you may not recall what that information is. You have the contemporaneously recorded information there. The best example of that was... Um, uh, we had a client once whose husband, he was involved in a number of different things, but the most lucrative thing he did was an all cash business. He kept meticulous records. They were in the house uh, so we could prove how much money he made. And uh, we told the client, you know, you need to go and you need to take these records and at least make copies of them. And it was, there were a lot because he, again, he had meticulous records. The client did not do that. Um, she felt that would be too intrusive. But what she did do is she took one or two files as sort of a demonstration. And one or two files wasn't enough. We didn't have that information. And so we spent literally months trying to prove exactly how much money this guy made. When that information was actually available, it was there for the taking. And your client accrued probably much higher legal fees as a result because you couldn't get it. I just want to ask one last question about the attorney-client privilege. When a client meets with you, even a prospective client who has not yet retained you, what is your obligation to that client in terms of disclosing that information to anyone else? Yes. So even a consultation, uh, I tell people right at the consultation that it's all attorney-client privilege. Um, I even had a case once where I was representing somebody and then the husband had gone from one attorney and hired a second, second attorney. That attorney actually had a consultation with my client and therefore that attorney had to get off the case. It took a little bit of doing, but absolutely, it's, it's attorney-client privilege. Anything that's discussed in the consultation or during the course of representation is absolutely privileged. Very good. Okay, and that's it for our 29th episode. Thank you, David Teeter, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LI Law podcast that the town of Huntington is now live streaming its ethics board meetings to bring further transparency to its actions. The hearings are being recorded and may be viewed live on TV and online or replayed later. The website is huntingtonny.gov forward slash meetings. The LI Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.